Welcome to the Busy Mumsy Podcast, Season 2. I'm your forever coffee-infused host, Ashley Verma, and we are all here weekly to share the ups, downs, and all-arounds of the wild world of parenting. A safe space, a Lego-free space, to vent, to inspire, and well, perhaps this is the only adult conversation you hear all day. What is Adia doing? A, B, C, D. <laughs> is that funny? So each week, I will be joined by a fellow striving, thriving, and surviving busy mumsy. We learn together. We grow together. Hell, we cheers with an adult bevy when necessary. I get it. I am human and failures simply happen. I am not shiny and I am never filtered unapologetically. I am at its best. Even when the dishes aren't done, there's crayon on the wall, and well, my hair hasn't been washed in forever. I am Busy Mumsy. My glorious friends, it's that day. It's a Wednesday, so that means it's time for Busy Mumsy Chat. And I want to lead with a promise for today. Today, I am not going to completely hijack this conversation with the guest and turn it into my own therapy session. I promise you, I give you my word. As today, we are welcoming Dr. Emma Spanberg on for a Busy Mumsy Chat. Dr. Emma Spanberg has been working with parents and families for over 20 years and qualified as a clinical psychologist in 2009. Emma is known as the mumologist because she works predominantly with mums and mums-to-be. Her social media is phenomenal. Like, it's absolutely glorious. And if you're in one of those moments where you have, like, oh, any any sort of question about parenting and about, like, where you are in the moment. Like, for instance, it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you have a screaming toddler. Or it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you're on your fifth cup of coffee and you have a screaming toddler. I swear I'm not going to make this into my own therapy session. I can't wait to meet her. She has recently launched her new book, Parenting for Humans, and I am just really looking forward to this this chat. So let's dive on in. Dr. Emma Spanberg, welcome to the Busy Mumsy podcast. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Well, it is so lovely to meet you as I feel like a fast friend of yours, as many do um, from your Instagram account mammologist, which is pretty freaking epic. You have quite the following. <laughs> I do, but, the- but what I really love about my, um, I mean, the community on Instagram and also on Facebook is that a lot of people have been around for a very long time. So I feel like I've really seen their children grow up with them and I've heard about their kind of different problems or issues or successes at various different stages of their parenting journey. So they're a very engaged community, which is really lovely. Well, I really appreciate that. Well, I am that. now engaged. I, I am now engaged. I, I am a new member, but I feel like I'm sitting comfortably. I feel very secure within the community, which I love. And I have to ask out the gate, where did your love of giving back to others to help nurture them, to help make them feel empowered in themselves to to be, I mean, we're, we're going to get into the book, the Parenting for Humans, but yeah. to be a psychologist, that, that just doesn't, you don't wake up one day and go, hmm, I think today and the rest of my life, I'm going to be a psychologist. There has to be more to this. And I would love for you to share what that journey was for you. Yes, I'd love to. Thank you for asking me that question. It's not something that I often get to talk about. So 
my work is all about understanding how your childhood history and influences have an impact on your adult life. So it is no surprises that both of my parents have been very influential on my journey to becoming a psychologist and also a psychologist who's very sort of interested and invested in social justice. And that's where I guess the giving back comes in from the communities that I facilitate and also the work that I do. You know, a very big part of my work is thinking about how do we how do we reach more people? How do we improve access really for people to be able to kind of get this information that seems to be so common you know to to information to help people deal with problems that are so common so present in everyday life and yet despite that people still feel like they are the only one so that's a big part of my kind of work and my motivation I suppose is that in doing work in the therapy room with people sort of hundreds of people probably by now over the years you hear these very common themes that come up over and over and over again so part of that kind of community building for me has come from a real motivation of wanting to make sure that people understand this is not an individual experience this is something that is so common to so many parents and if that's the case then even though maybe we have a personal responsibility to do something about that and we can make changes ourselves on an individual level actually there are also social and structural reasons that can keep us in that position of feeling that we're struggling or feeling like we're on our own for example that combination for me came very much from my parents and my dad is also a clinical psychologist and he was an expert in attachment theory set up a project in the north of England called it was the first infant mental health project in the UK so that was really kind of influential as I was becoming a teenager he was becoming very interested in at that time what was a very new theory for him kind of learning about attachment learning about the parent infant relationship the importance of that so really, in my the importance or even caring I, I mean I mean to interrupt but like think back to that time we're all yeah. kind of in this weird world now of acknowledging care and, and acknowledging of needing help and that it's okay to say that you've hit rock bottom and that I need to now invest in building blocks to get myself put back together mm-hmm. Really, that's such a a huge journey for your father yeah. during a time yeah. where it really wasn't. We were so well. I mean, we were young, right? Your your dad was was is in his you know starting his profession. So back in, I, I'm saying we were. I'm putting you with me. <laughs> I'm putting you with me. Emma. I'm just putting you there. And Might I'm sorry. be a bit older than you, Ashley. No, it's it's fine. But I think yeah. Well, it wasn't the start of his career. I guess it was the. It, he'd moved into learning about attachment kind of in his mid, I'd say probably his mid-career. But, you know, th- at that time, there was a real explosion of interest in infant mental health mm. and attachment theory. You know, this kind of what felt like a very new area of neuroscience. So learning about the interaction between brain development and parenting, kind of all of that felt very new. So this is, we're talking about the mid-90s here. Mm-hmm. And I was really privileged because... I was able to hear and be involved in conversation. And this is the great thing about psychologists. They really love curiosity. So as a teenager, you know, I would have people around my dinner table who are experts in attachment and would be kind of overhearing and part of these conversations. So 
even though at that time I had no interest in becoming a psychologist myself. Of course, that was something that became very influential on me as I went through into my adult life and chose my own career. This kind of, yeah, this sort of belief or message that I was very much raised with about the importance of parenting. And then in addition to that, the importance of supporting parents in order to be able to parent in a way that is of benefit to a child. And that's the bit that's really tricky. And then on the other side of it, my mum was a social worker. She came to the UK. Or a family of givers. Well, public service, right? It's very much part of our makeup. So she came to the UK from Sri Lanka um, came and was a nurse and then she became a social worker and set up her own um, charity in around the same time actually sort of early 90s so yeah very both of them and you don't realize it at the time but when I kind of look back on you know why those really strong messages that were very much part of my upbringing it was about it yeah, not just about public service but social justice that the impact of policies and um you know kind of governmental and local authority decisions on individuals physical and mental health the importance of support that was something that was a very clear message that was part of my childhood and I think for mm, go no go go ahead I was just gonna say I think for both of them you know I, I kind of joke about it but if I was brought up in Newcastle and if I walked around in Newcastle my mum would be stopped by multiple people like she just knew everybody because she had helped so many people and I think that that was something that just was part of our family culture you know this is just what you do you you help other people and you support them where you can how do you switch from the hat of being the psychologist and that giving and giving and then to switch back to yourself, but then yourself as a mom, as a wife, as just you and, and your own being there, there ha- is, it, it, do you find it's a big ping pong act for yourself or is this an easy transition or you're just, this is where you sit and this is just how it is morning, noon and night, 24 seven. It's definitely not 24 <laughs> <laughs> seven. Definitely clarify that. <laughs> Because I'm very aware, you know, that when that is something that is part of your life, that can raise things for other people, right, about their capacity to give, their capacity to be able to think about other people. And particularly when you're in new parenthood, that you really don't have any capacity to think about anybody else. And you're just often struggling to get through the day. So I think it's really important to say that I have developed over the years many different ways to make sure that I am resourced myself. And that's something that you know, I think I used to work in the NHS. I think that working in the NHS, that wasn't really part of my daily life in the same way, kind of thinking about resourcing myself to prevent burnout. And I think in the work that I've done around trauma in professionals in the NHS, particularly through Make Birth Better and working with birth trauma organisations, part of that has to be an acknowledgement, knowledge of our own capacity to run out of steam and then to burn out and of course there is you know as much as you might want to give whether that's in your own family or whether that's outside if we're not also well resourced and looking after ourselves like there just comes a point where your body just says no I can't carry on doing that anymore so if you are going to be somebody who's giving on that something that's important for you you also have to give to yourself first and foremost otherwise 
you know, your capacity to give just runs out inevitably. But also it's not about martyrdom, I guess. It's important to kind of make that distinction that, you know, I was really honoured. I spoke at the Upfront and Centre conference uh, a week ago in Glasgow run by Lauren Curry. And I was very honoured to be invited to speak on a panel about activism. So it was the first time that I'd been kind of labelled as an activist by somebody else. So that was a real privilege for me. And part of that conversation was very much around gentle activism. You know, we're not talking about martyring ourselves on the altar of motherhood or social justice or campaigning or whatever it is. It's about how do we take steps in our actions because we want to see changes in the world, whether that's the world in our own homes or whether that's the world around us. And to do that, a really important part of that has to be rest and knowing when we need to recover and resource ourselves and when we can sort of go back out into the world again. Well, in your field um, that you're in, what, what do you hope to change and what do you hope that you can do with your voice with your platform that you could you know get government listening to with you know wider ears open i think the the big thing for me is making sure that parents feel valued and it's not just about feeling valued in the work that they're doing around them you know that their, their, their family and their community values their contribution to the world and to society. It's also that governments and the state puts their money where their mouth is and shows that value because there are so many different layers to it. But at the moment, for example, in the UK, we have the most expensive childcare system in the world. You know, the gender pay gap is increasing in this country. So all of these things that, you know, might leave usually women who either choose or feel like they have no choice to stay at home with their children. It just makes it much harder for them to then go back into work or then to go into work that feels that they are able to balance that very difficult juggle of work and family life. And then in addition to that, it's very difficult for you know, male or, or same-sex partners to then have significant time off work to, to support a family life. Because of those kind of more governmental, practical policy issues that come up in families, those much more emotional, psychological issues are very hard to resolve. If we have, for example, you know, a woman who is staying at home, who's chosen to stay at home with her children, or for whatever reason is staying at home with her children, and they she ends up feeling that she's doing that in isolation because her partner financially has to work all of the hours of the day and they don't have easy access to high quality childcare. you know all of those things will have a mental health impact but actually the root of that is not in that individual's psychological or mental health you know that just is out of their control it's at out that of point. Their control yeah so it, it and I think that's one of the really key messages that I'd like to get across to people is that it, this is so often not about an individual issue. It's so often about the world that we live in, the circumstances around us. And if that is not spoken about and acknowledged, then we end up feeling like it's us, you know, that it's, it's our fault, that we're not coping very well. Whereas if we widen out that story and think, well, maybe we're coping the best we can in really challenging circumstances, then it changes the way that we go through our day. It changes the messages that we say to ourselves. We talk to ourselves with more 
compassion, for example. Oh, something I think that we just said that, that I feel like that's like a trying thing every day, yeah. <laughs> regardless of, of what subject it, it is in the parenting, being an adult, just living now the best that you can. It's always a question, right? So here you are, you've just launched a new book, Parenting for Humans. Congratulations. Thank you. How long did it take you to write the book? It's been a book that's been in my mind for a very, very long time, like years. I mean, and it really does kind of take people through the process that I often go through with clients in therapy. So thinking about, you know, who they are and what they're bringing. And then once we understand that, we can see what comes up in our parenting daily life, the kind of triggers or challenges that we might have. So it's been kind of percolating for a long time. And then it, it it turned into a book proposal with the help of a very wonderful agent in 2020, just around the time that we were going into our first lockdown. So, you know, in, in that kind of process of, you know, kind of getting our heads around lockdown, around COVID, it, it was a long time coming. But then actually kind of sitting down to seriously write it probably took me about three or four months, but with lots of back and forth, you know, between editors and, you know, the, the process of writing is like something else, kind of completely different to anything that I've ever had to do before in having a copy editor kind of really think very carefully with me about how things were written down on the page and the kind of messages that I wanted to get across. So it is very much a, a, a collaborative process, much more so than I'd realised before I started writing. So there were, you know, brilliant team of people who really helped me kind of turn my thoughts into something that made much more sense than my early drafts. <laughs> and that's okay. Well, that's all, all, all a part of the learning and just absolutely the next book and the next book, you're, you'll get faster, but like you'll understand that it is that team effort, right? That it takes absolutely. And, you know, I'm all about, you know, needing support and having community and, you know, that in terms of, I, I love writing, I really enjoy the process of writing. Um, and that but I haven't written for a kind of, you know, mainstream audience, I've written academic journals, that kind of thing before. So kind of getting that tone right of being able to write for a, not a non-academic audience is something that I really enjoyed doing. And yeah, it was absolutely brilliant learning process. Yeah, I think I would be like, in my head, it makes sense. But then like I'm writing and then, you know, to have the feedback, I'd be like, oh, but wait, I'm in it. So uh, yeah, I, I, I think I would quite enjoy that process though. It's it a be... really, it's lovely. It's a lovely process. And I think also the copy editor that I worked with, she was so clear because she's, you know, followed me on Instagram and she's kind of followed my work as well. Um, and, and and the editor herself, you know, they they talked very much about what what is my voice and the voice that, I, you know, that they've heard me talking for years. And in some ways, it was a really wonderful process to be to have their help in learning the skill of bringing my voice onto the page. And that is the feedback that I've had, which is really lovely that it sounds like I'm, people feel like I'm talking to them. So that was a really, yeah, it was a, a great process, really. Well, I absolutely love the title, Parenting for Humans. And speaking of voice, and you found your voice and it was pen to paper and you, you were able to get this book out just recently launched. I have to ask as many, many women, especially parents in general, but women especially, they have a new child and everything is about giving and nurturing and building blocks to this child. And then they kind of forget about 
hey, what about me, right? Themselves. Mm. And that feeling of good enough, that feeling of worthiness. And it almost can come across at times as like, I, I felt this way. So I'll say it from my, from my perspective, I was coming across as maybe a bit like, oh gosh, Ashley, just get over what you're like nagging, like, come on. Like, mm. but those questions, that feeling comes up and you don't know how to move it around and shift it in your body to make it feel like you're back to you. Mm-hmm. How do you have tips, advice on that? Like, how can that mother feel good enough you know, in those early stages of parenthood? Well, I, I think it's a really interesting question because in some ways it is a transition. And in in all transition, there will be identity transformation too. And part of an identity transformation is that we question ourselves and we question everything, who we are, what are we doing with our life? Huge, it's literally, it turns everything upside down. So for me, part of that is understanding that you might not feel good enough for a while. You know, we're learning new skills. We're in a new relationship. Everything around us has changed. As part of that, it's okay to feel like the world has turned upside down. That is part of the process. Because I think when we judge that or we question that or we feel like that's not okay, that adds a whole other layer of stress, right? Because we're then going, not only do I not feel good enough, but I'm not supposed to feel this way. I'm supposed to feel like I'm coping. I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. Part of that, I talk about this a lot in the book, is the idea, this very strong story that we have that we should know what we're doing as parents. Like, where does that narrative come from? Like, I've just had a new baby. I've never done this before. But yet somehow I'm supposed to know what I'm doing here. And I'm supposed to appear to everybody else like I'm coping really, really well. Emma, I have to say, I just had um, Michelle Pratt on. and She um, created this business called Safe in the Seat. Mm -hmm. And she talked about a car seat, something so simple, right? Something so simple that you put in the car. She created a business around this because no one really knows until they're in the thick of the moment that maybe (laughs) perhaps... Just maybe I should have practiced. Just maybe. (laughs) Yeah. So many things. Back to your point of like, you just don't know because once you are in the thick of it with this child, you are, you're just giving and you're giving and you're just kind of like full speed ahead that you forget. Yeah. But you're also in a high stress state a lot of the time because children's needs are very urgent, especially new babies' needs. So, you're in a state of kind of high anxiety, high stress, you're learning all the time, new skills, you know, I mean, the, the, when you talk about car seats, you know, the idea, and and of course those skills change because it's very different putting a newborn baby into a car seat than it is putting a, a toddler who's decided to go rigid as a board into a car seat than it is putting an older child into a car seat. Were you and- with me this morning? That, <laughs> happens. that happens, that happens. Yeah, you know, the, and and the stress of just that, just that tiny part of your day that nobody would ever say, hey, Ashley, how was it getting your toddler into the car seat this morning? That can actually derail you for an entire day with those questions of, did I do okay? You know, the way that I responded to that, how does my child feel? And then we can very quickly spiral into all of the ideals that come along with that. Well, 
you know, if I watch a car seat advert and see a toddler just kind of sitting really beautifully in their car seat, how come I don't get to have that in my life? You know, so all of those kind of stories, narratives, ideals that we have often very unconsciously in our own minds that can really come in as judgments when we're going through our daily life. And if we bring them into our consciousness and think about what are these stories that I'm telling myself, even if it's just about car seats, what are the kind of expectations that I'm then placing on myself as a result of those ideals, then we can often see where that not good enough feeling is coming from. And so often it's coming from a place of idealization, right? It's coming from, I have a story about what I'm supposed to be doing, how I'm supposed to be feeling, how my child is supposed to be responding to me. What am I basing that expectation in? And if it is a fantasy story, then how can I let go of that? What's the, re what's the reality that I'm actually facing day to day? And when I can understand my reality, then maybe I can tell myself that I'm not just doing well enough, but I'm actually doing a really good job. Now, is this also then your approach to what, because I, I, I was, of course, on your social media and you speak about low pressure parenting. So is this kind of like that, what, what you're meaning by like a gentler approach going in that direction? Well, yeah, and mainly around taking the pressure off parents to get it right all the time. And I'm saying get it right in inverted commas, because I think one of the really difficult things that's happened over the last few years is that there has been such a huge boom in the amount of information that there is out there for parents. Lots of it very, very helpful, really useful, great strategies. But because you're in that stressed out state already, it can also feel incredibly overwhelming. What I find with a lot of the parents that I speak to is that it can almost turn into a bit of a checklist of all of these different things that I need to do in order to be able to say to myself that I'm a good parent. The problem is, is that there are so many of those things on that checklist and often they're very contradictory. So we might be feeling like we're totally smashing it in one area, but in doing that, there's a whole other area that we haven't addressed. Or actually, we're so focused on the doing of it that we haven't really checked in with how we feel. And we also haven't then checked in with how our child feels. And sometimes we can get so consumed with that idea of, of doing, of being a certain way, of acting in a certain way, that we actually lose sight of what's really important, which is the connection, the relationship between us and our child. When we take the pressure off, we sort of let go of some of the things on that checklist and we think about what we want from our daily lives as parenting and what really benefits us and our child, then we can feel our shoulders drop, right? And we become, you know, parenting becomes something that we are, that we are just in, you know, we're doing this through a relationship, we're being together. It's not necessarily then about the actions that we're taking or the strategies that we're using. It becomes less about getting it right or wrong or success and failure and more just about how do we just be together these two humans I love that you said about the shoulders up in the ears and yeah. I always laugh about the oh I have broad shoulders I can handle it I can mm -hmm. handle it broad mm -hmm. shoulders but it's so true in saying they're also they're they're like past my ears and up through the roof and probably in another country with just putting the pressure, what do you think would be beneficial to eliminate? What, what do you guide 
anyone that comes to you to say like, maybe if you could eliminate this from your daily activity, or do you think social media has had such an impact in such a, 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 you know, the wrong spiraling way that this is just where we are now. And this is how, what we have to deal with. I don't think it's what we have to deal with. I think we always have a choice, that we have choice about what we want to take in, the kind of information that we want to consume. And I also think that there will be a backlash. You know, I think that that this is how we operate humans. You know, we kind of pendulum swing from one thing to the next. And I think that there has been, you know, the pressure comes from perfectionism and perfectionism is very much part of our culture but there is a swing back, which we're really seeing now, you know, there's a kind of real growth in conversation about rest and restoration and recovery. So you can see that that kind of the pressure towards achievement is now being replaced by something that is maybe more generous and compassionate. I would hope so. But it's also about then making sure that you are accessing those kind of messages. You know, how do I, if it's social media, for example, what am I seeing on my newsfeed when I open my phone every day? Is that something that's making me feel good about myself? Or is that something that's leaving me feeling really pressured or that I'm failing in some way? And if that's the case, what do I want to do about that? It's not about giving up social media. It might be about making sure that you're accessing messages that make you feel good, make you feel supported. But also, I think it often just comes down to that question of why do I think this? Where am I getting that from? Because it might be social media. It might also be an internalized message that we've got from somewhere else. In the book, I talk about, you know, some of those really powerful messages of what family should look like that we're all raised with, but we don't really question. And so things like the TV shows that we've watched, the films that we've watched, the kind of family lives that we saw around us from our family, friends, from, you know, our friends, parents, from our wider family networks, all of I mean, these I, strive, I mean, is, is it wrong to strive for what you saw as a child growing up? Because for me, I loved my parents' relationship. Mm-hmm. I loved the family I was in. And it wasn't the fanciest family. It wasn't, didn't have all the bells and whistles. I'm from Moundsville, West Virginia, where everyone knows your name and everyone knows your business. Walk to school. Um, you know what I mean? Like it was just very simple and it wasn't easy for my parents. I do know that because having children is expensive mm-hmm. and they did everything they could to provide for what we wanted to do. But I didn't see fighting and I didn't see an overabundance of, of lavishness. It was just, they made it work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is that wrong to want to strive still for something like that in this kind of, I, I mean, in a way of like a more of a flipped upside down world where everything is glamorized and media is, is pumped out there? Such an interesting question though, Ashley, because again, we're talking about right and wrong. And I would say, well, there is no wrong. There is no yeah. wrong and there is no right. It's about what works for you. What makes you feel like you're living a life that is, a, it, you know, according to your values, that you're living a life that makes you feel like, yeah, this is the sort of life that I want to be living. And that will look different for everybody. So for one family, actually striving for something that feels different to that might be the, the thing that fits for them. For you and your family, 
being able to replicate, you know, the really good bits from your family life, the things that you remember really fondly, that's something that, you know, absolutely, if that feels right for you, then that's what you should strive for. And that's the bit that's really important. It's about what feels right for you and for your family. And that can be different for everybody. You know, again, we we can often, I mean, I focus because I tend to work with people who've had difficult childhoods who are trying to repair things from their own histories. And when they come into their family life, actually, they're really flipping that script, the script that they were brought up with. So a lot of my conversation is around if that's the case, you know, where are those kind of more difficult messages that you might be trying to, you know, change in your own family life? What are the kind of behaviours, beliefs, experiences that you had that you don't want to repeat? And we can often know much more about what we don't want to repeat than what we want to replace that with. So again, really thinking very consciously about if that's something that I don't want to do, what do I want to do instead? How do I want to you know, have something that feels quite different in my own family. But of course, there are loads of things that we want to repeat from our own childhoods. In the book, again, I talk about ghosts in the nursery, but there are also angels in the nursery. So ghosts in the nursery are those kind of shadows from our past that can come and feel very influential. Often they're quite unconscious. And it means that we just behave in ways or we say things that we really wish that we hadn't said or that we remember from our own childhoods that we don't want to repeat, but they somehow live in our bodies and they kind of pop out of our mouths, especially when we're in those places, you know, those states of stress at which we often are in kind of early parenthood or when we're dealing with, you know, toddler tantrum or a really upset teenager, all of those times where we might feel really stressed, then those are when those ghosts can kind of come out and feel a little bit outside of our control. We also have loads of angels, you know, those kind of experiences that make us feel really warm, that remind us that we felt cared for. They might not be with our parents and caregivers, they might be with other adults, or they might be with siblings or other people who were important in our lives. And those are the kind of experiences that, again, if we bring that to our consciousness, we can not only then think, those are the kind of things that I really want my children to experience because they felt really good for me. But that can also take the pressure off because when we think of our own positive experiences, often they're very, very simple. You know, they're not the things that look good on social media. They're snuggling up and watching a film together or yes. so the fact that... Immediately what I thought of. Immediately yeah, what I really thought of. simple, cosy and a warm hug and a grilled cheese sandwich like hot chocolate so simple. immediately that's yeah. where my brain how lovely or even just knowing when you walked in the door that you were going to be greeted with a smile you know that doesn't take anything it doesn't cost a lot it, it can take a lot when you're feeling really overwhelmed and stressed but actually for a child when you think about those memories that you really want to hold on to the things that made you feel seen and loved and cared for they are often the most simple things that really don't take a lot from us. But we can get, we put so much pressure on ourselves to, to get it right, to do the things that kind of look really good on the outside or to give our children these amazing, memorable experiences when the mm. stuff that made us feel understood was just somebody greeting you with a warm smile at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, I, Yeah. No, it, it, and then it instantly makes me think also, like we recently had a lavish birthday for my daughter, but I don't feel guilty for giving that to her because we could give that to her. Mm -hmm. And 
all the pictures and all the videos to, to always remind her. And I remind her every day how much I love her. And I tell her little secrets and we do pinky promises and, you know, like all of those things that I can also remember. They weren't, my birthday parties weren't as lavish as what I gave my daughter a couple of weeks ago, but my birthday parties were always there and they were always fun and exciting and filled with love. And yeah. it's finding that, I guess, balance of what I had to where I am now and not, there was nothing wrong with what I had and there's nothing wrong now. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's doing, it's doing what suits you, right? It's doing what suits you because you want to do it and it's because it what, what feels right for you. I think if we have a lavish birthday party because we feel that that's what's expected of us, and it becomes more about us meeting our expectations, that's where it can raise pressure and can leave us feeling disconnected. If we have a lavish birthday party, because we just really want to have a lavish birthday party. Three, I didn't want to let her down. I wanted to make sure she had friends there and she had just like was having the best time. I wanted her to be a sweaty mess of paint running down her face by the end of it. And luckily she was like, I'm like, she was so tired out by the end of it. And just like, and then I, I had this like little um, painting thing done for her um, from a, a local artist. And she just like beams at it now and goes birthday. That's my birthday. And I was just like, like that was my like grilled cheese sandwich and my Campbell's soup right there. Like that was just <laughs> everything. You have no but idea. It's, it's, what's so lovely as well though is that as she gets older, she can let you know how she wants to be celebrated. You know, that when they're right. little, we get to decide, right? That we, we make, we have to make those decisions. It's difficult for them to be able to articulate to us what it is that they need from us. So there's a lot of guesswork involved with little ones. But as they get like older, they'll let us know. Right. And like being in lockdown and like the bananas of like her first two years of life, mm. I feel like it's like all I want her to do now is just like fly and just take it all in because we were in such this. And I personally, this is probably where my guilt comes in. I have triggering thoughts from when I first had Adia to where I am now because we were in such topsy-turvy, the whole world. Mm. I was losing a business every day. Mm. I, when we went into lockdown, I was in this body I didn't know, trying to heal it, post-cesarean, teaching mm. an obscene amount of fitness classes to personal yeah. training clients and trying to make sure my staff was working. I mean, I, I think I was really, I literally, I, 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 should, I really should be paying you for this lovely therapy session Dr. Emma, because I'm literally seeing this right before my eyes right now yeah. that I am living in this space now that I am trying to make up for the person I didn't like. Right. Right. Yeah. I didn't. That person, because that person was in such survival mode. Yes. But then she needed to be in survival mode. Right. And that. Yeah, yeah. And when you, we can look back on that. And I think this is some, something that is really important because I think that so many people look back on those lockdown experiences that were so different for everybody. But people have their own, I'm going to use the word trauma. You know, for some people, there is trauma. It might not be a kind of huge acute trauma or one particular traumatic event, but there was a, there was a lot of loss for people in yeah. various different ways. You're talking about losing business. You're talking about different kinds of stresses, 
at the time where you're becoming a mum. But also, you know, our loss of certainty, our loss of understanding, like this is the world that I live in, like all of that also got flipped upside down. What we tend to, so I'm going to broaden out your experience, you know, because what we tend to do when we, when we have been in survival mode for a long time is that we avoid, right? We kind of then go, right, I'm going to do, I'm going to throw everything that I can at my life as it is now so that I can avoid those difficult feelings that I might have from back then, but also, you know, kind of paper over that with something that feels really, really positive. The tricky thing is, is that if we don't look back and and look at those difficult feelings or experiences, they do pop out in other ways. So it can become like a sort of compensation, right? Because actually what we're trying to do very, very hard, and we can work very hard at doing this, expend a lot of energy into doing this, is not have to feel the painful feelings that are kind of still in there somewhere about the fact that maybe this wasn't the experience that I expected. This wasn't the experience that I wanted. These are not memories that I want to look back on because actually they feel difficult or painful. We don't like feeling pain. You know, we don't want to look back on difficult memories. But and thinking about in your example, you know, what we can then think about is, well, what do I need now? You know, because we might be, you might be looking at your daughter thinking, well, I really want to give her all of this stuff that she didn't have for the first couple of years. But then maybe it's also about thinking, what do I need? Maybe I need to have the big birthday party because actually I want to celebrate me and what I've been through. And we can do that as parents, can't we? We can really celebrate our children and we can really give them so much. But often, I mean, it's called projective identification. You know, we kind of give them the things that we need and then we we offer it to them in order to kind of heal ourselves in some way. But actually, they're not the ones who need it because they didn't have the experiences that we had and we're still left needing it. So I would suggest that you need to have a birthday party. <laughs> a big one a big celebration of who you are now and what you know everything that you've overcome right because and I think you know it is something that we're really bad at as parents because we pour so much into our children but actually being able to look at ourselves and think well what did I need then what did I need then right back then when I was very little what do I need right now in this moment and what is it that I'm not getting what is it that I'm maybe even trying to get for myself through giving it to somebody else that might be my child or somebody else Mm. and knowing that it's helpful and important that we do that that we give that to ourselves I will I'm gonna hold that one in yeah birthday party for you (laughs) now that you have launched parenting for humans what is next for you what are your big hopes your dreams that we will be seeing on your social media platform well I I really like to I'm I'm very I mean one of my one of my friends says that I'm like a a cheetah right like I go after one thing like go after the zebra and then I'm like oh no but there's a gazelle I'm going to go after the gazelle so I tend to have lots and lots of ideas all at the same time what I'm really working on this year is just sticking with that one idea. <laughs> so I really want to stay with Parenting for Humans and the ideas in Parenting for Humans and be able to kind of dig deeper into them. And I'm thinking about putting together some workshops for parents so that we can explore some of the ideas in the book in more depth so that people can think about how to apply them to their own lives. 
and I'm also thinking about you know what I can do to offer support to other professionals who are doing this kind of work as well because one of the big changes that's happened over my career is that looking back into that more kind of childhood experience you know that sort of psychotherapeutic approach has become much harder to access in public sector public services particularly here in the UK so I think that being able to bring those ideas out for people professionals who are working in this field is also really important because when we kind of get very stuck on fixing the here and now we can you know help up to a point but until we look back at you know where did that wound come from in the first place how are we going to heal the wound kind of at its source rather than just kind of putting a sticking plaster on top that's the kind of work that we can do as professionals that really can help create meaningful change for individuals and their families. So I'm just staying put is my answer to that question. I'm just going to stay put for now and kind of see what comes. Well, I think it's a great place to stay put. That is for sure. Let me just say, don't be surprised when you see me nestled into one of your workshops. Yeah, uh, I shall let you know. (laughs) I need to get comfortable into one of them. Dr. Emma Spanberg, thank you so much for your time, your words of wisdom. And um, everyone go buy your book because oh, thank you, Ashley. Uh, honestly, I, I feel like I had a, a, a session in itself. So I'm sorry to everyone that I made that selfish and about me for a hot second, but I well, will I take it. Is what you're talking about is that they're very common themes, like we said at the beginning. So hopefully it will be useful. It was so meaningful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this week's show. Did you like it, Adia? Yes! Oh, the enthusiasm. I love it. Please share your love by giving us a five-star rating, a rockin' review, and please share with any fellow Busy Mumsies. We love hearing from you. So if you want to get in touch, head to the Busy Mumsy show notes for further details and links to the Busy Mumsy website. So long for now. Can you say bye-bye, Adia? Bye-bye, Adia. Yeah. <laughs>